Amen. That was good. Thank you, Mr. Ravala, for playing for us today. I hope we didn't put you on the spot too much, but it was a blessing. I tell you, God has blessed us with a lot of musical talent in this church. We are never uh, short of having somebody to lead us in a worship, and so we are grateful uh, to the Lord for that. All right. Revelation chapter 20. We have got us a doozy of a text today. This is a tough one, y'all. Now, we have... We have looked at some, some tough texts in the book of Revelation so far. Some of them have been tough because uh, they were hard to understand. Some of them have been tough just because they were tough things that maybe were hard for us to hear. Some of them were tough because uh, they were scary. They were things that were, that were tough because they were scary. And this is a tough uh, text today because it leaves a lot of questions, at least for me it does. Uh, when I read uh, through these verses that we're looking at today, uh, verses 1 through 10, Revelation chapter 20, uh, for me, it, it leaves a lot of questions, a lot of confusion as to, well, wait a minute now, how is all this going to happen? What does all this mean? What in the world are we to make of this? And the answer to that is, I don't know. Now, I have said those words a lot throughout this study of Revelation. I will preach to you guys and teach to you guys as best as I can today uh, on these texts and, and based on what not just this text, but what the rest of text says as to what I believe that these verses are saying. But with that said, uh, there are some things in God's Word that are a mystery. We see that in God's Word uh, time after time. And there are some things in God's Word uh, that are a mystery that, that I believe that we won't understand during this life to come. Now, maybe God will uh, reveal these things to us. Maybe some of you guys, God has revealed something to you in these verses that He has not revealed to me yet. Or, or maybe this is one of those verses that is just going to be a mystery to us until the day comes that it all takes place. And so I know that these verses today may have you scratching your head, but do not worry, you are not alone. So we are going to dig in, and even though we may not understand all of the details and everything that's in the text, we want to make sure that we don't miss the point of the text and what I believe the point of the text is today. So uh, let's not get too sidetracked with all the details that we may not understand because, as I said, there are some things that we just aren't going to understand. Uh, but with that said, we as Christians, we have faith to know that God is good and that even though the things that we don't understand, God didn't write His Word to be confusing, but there are some things that God has chosen not to reveal to us. So let's pray and then we'll dig in. <coughs> God, I come to you today and I pray, God, that you would get my mind straight. Dear Lord, it seems like every week that I come in here that there is something that is said, something that, some thought that crosses my mind, something that is done that, that leaves me off in left field, that gets me distracted, that gets me off of, 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 of thinking and getting ready to preach and teach your word. And God, that is the enemy. That's what he wants to do. He wants to keep me from teaching accurately and preaching accurately the truth of Jesus Christ. And God, he wants to keep each one of us in here from hearing the truth of Jesus Christ. God, He wants us to sit here and daydream and lollygag and get ready to go and move on with our week, dear Lord. But this is a time that we have come, that we have set aside to worship You. And so, God, help us to give You this time. God, I pray that You would clear our minds, that You would clear our hearts of things of this world, of any anger, any bitterness, any, any foul thoughts, anything that's keeping us off track today, God, that You would forgive us of those things, that You would clear our mind of those things. I pray that you would give us ears to hear God, not just physical ears, that we hear your words and they go in one ear and out the other, but God, that we hear your words in our physical ears and they go to our spiritual heart. And that our lives are transformed. 
and that our hope is renewed and that there is an excitement for Jesus Christ in this place today. So I pray, God, that you'd speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would reveal uh, what you want us to hear today, God, that even though it's confused, help, confusing sometimes to us, help us not to lose heart. Help us not to question or doubt you to God, but to know that you have our best interest in mind. And so help us to learn what we can from your word today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. He threw him into the abyss and closed it and put a seal on it so that he could no longer deceive the nations until 1,000 years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for 1,000 years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will reign with him for 1,000 years. When the 1,000 years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What we saw last week in the text was that uh, this great battle had come to uh, was about to come to an end that all of the kings and all of the leaders of the world had gathered all of those who were opposed to Jesus Christ all who had rejected Jesus Christ and a great war was taking place and here enters Jesus Christ coming in on his white horse with an army behind him which I believe is the saints that is those who are in Christ with an army of saints behind him and they were uh, coming down from heaven and the battle was over. Jesus came into the scene and he was the king of kings and lord of lords and all of the ones who were kings and had power before this point, the Antichrist, the false prophet, all of them were destroyed. The Antichrist and the false prophet were cast into the lake of fire. And all the rest of those who were left, it said that the uh, birds of the air uh, feast on their flesh. And we had looked at the week before that those who were in Christ were attending the marriage feast of the Lamb. So those who were in Christ were taken care of and they were having a wonderful time. And now we see that those who were in Christ are coming back victorious with Him. And those who are opposed to Christ are not having such a good time. 
So now we, we take up where we left off from there last week. In verse 1 it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and the key to the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. Now we talked about this abyss earlier on back in the book of Revelation, around <coughs> chapter 6, 7, all through there we kind of discussed those things. I won't go into great detail about them. You can go back and listen to them online if you would like to. But this abyss was a place that these locusts that the Bible calls them, which could have been real, physical, literal locusts, or they could have been representative of some, uh, representative of some uh, demonic uh, group that had been uh, locked away for some period of time, and they were released we saw from the abyss. And so this abyss is not probably representative of hell, but it's some kind of prison, you could say. It's some kind of holding cell for uh, those demonic, those who were opposed to God, those locusts that we saw earlier. And so now we see this abyss come into picture again, and I believe it's probably the same abyss that we saw earlier on in the book of Revelation. And this angel comes down to the abyss with a chain in his hand, he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. So again, there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. We have seen the serpent referred to throughout uh, the Bible. We saw that early on in the book of Genesis. We have seen the dragon referred to in the book of Revelation. And sometimes that symbolism is revealed. And here it is revealed to us exactly who the serpent and the dragon is. And that is Satan himself. So we have already discussed that. And so here is Satan. Remember the false prophet and the Antichrist have been cast into the lake of fire. But God, for some reason has chosen not to bring Satan to his ultimate end at this point, but instead an angel comes down with chains to chain Satan and cast him into the abyss. So here we have Satan who is being uh, kept away from the people. He is going to be bound for 1,000 years. I'll read a little further. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the 1,000 years were completed. So here we have Satan who for a long time now has wreaked havoc through the book of Revelation. He has wreaked havoc. He has deceived many people. He has convinced many that you don't need to worry about God. I'm in control. I can take care of this thing. Don't worry about Jesus. Take this mark of the beast. Everything will be good. I'll provide everything you need. I'll take care of you. He has deceived the nations into thinking that the world doesn't need Jesus, that they need Him. But here we see that Satan no longer has the power to do that. Now all those he had deceived, it would appear in the verses we read last week, had been killed when Jesus returned. Those are the ones who the bird feasts on their flesh. So there are none left to deceive at this point, it wouldn't appear, but Satan is bound so he cannot cause any more trouble. Now why in the world would, Satan, uh, would God not just do away with Satan on the spot? That's a good question. And we're going to get into why I think that is in just a minute. It says, after that, he must be released for a short time. Again, that kind of makes us scratch our head a little bit. Why in the world would God bound Satan for a thousand years and then allow him to be released? Was God just torturing him? Well, I don't, I don't think that's the case. But what we have to look at when we look at these verses is we have to 
ask ourselves a question based on not just the book of Revelation, but based on all of the text is kind of how do these things play out and, and how are these things playing out? And what I mean by that is when do these things take place? Now, throughout the book of Revelation, we've looked at four main views that we've talked about. I won't go back over them. And they're all a little different. And some <laughs> believe that these things are mostly symbolic. Some believe that they are yet to come. And some believe that they have happened throughout history and whatnot. But when we get to this chapter, none of those views really stick. You can hold those, some of those views in the rest of the book of Revelation, but here we kind of have to look at things a little differently as to when do these things occur. Now, there are three main views, and I'm going to tell you some big words, and you don't need to remember them. They're not important, but, but they might be some, some, even if you don't call yourself by these names, you might hold the thoughts that go along with some of these views, one of which is the premillennial view. Now, this thousand years that we see in Revelation chapter 20 is called the millennium. And the pre-millennial view holds that all of these things are yet to happen in the future. That is that Jesus Christ is going to return before the millennium begins, of course, as we saw last week in chapter 19, and that there will be a literal reign for Jesus for 1,000 years that Satan will be literally bound in chains and he will be cast into an abyss for an actual 1,000-year period. And during that time, that Jesus will reign here on earth, that he will get to be the Messiah, that he will get to be the king, that he will get to be uh, the leader of those here on earth during that time. And then at the end of the 1,000 years, then Satan will be destroyed. That's the premillennial view. Uh, some of you may hold that view. Some of you may believe that it's literal in these texts. There's also a view called the um, amillennial view. The amillennial view says that um, when Jesus died on the cross, that that is when Satan was defeated and that Satan is already bound and the thousand years is representative of a long period of time and that we're currently living in the millennium that we now are in the millennium, that it's not a literal thousand years, but it just means a long time when it says a thousand years, and that there's coming a day as the end approaches that Satan will be released, and then you'll sure enough see some bad stuff, and then Jesus will defeat. I have a hard time with that view because if Satan is bound now, whoa. If Satan don't have any power and influence on our world today, then you, you better believe we don't want to see him when he does because it is going to be happening. But that's a view, and it, it, there's some strong arguments to that view that that could be uh, the case. Uh, the next view, the post-millennial view, is very similar to that, but there are a couple things that are different, and one of which is that uh, Satan is still in control right now, but there is coming a time when the end draws that Satan will be bound for a period of time, and at that point in time, it won't necessarily be Jesus who is coming back, but it will be the gospel that will be preached by Christians. That is, you and I, that is the gospel will run rampant throughout the world, and there will be many who will be saved, and then Jesus will come, and then the end will take place. Those are the three main views, and there are many different, uh, different shoots that shoot off from that, many branches of that tree, many different uh, differences there that could be added to those, but those are kind of the main views that people take on this uh, thousand years that we're talking about today. Now based on the text and everything that we've read into this point in the book of Revelation, I, in case you haven't noticed, I'm a bit of a literalist. I think many of the things in Revelation are literal, 
opposed from those things, except excuse me, except for those things that are clearly pointed out or symbolic, and even some of the ones that aren't. I don't necessarily believe everything is literal, but in this particular case, I believe that it's a literal thousand-year reign here. I believe that what we are going to see is that when Jesus Christ returns, that the devil, who I believe is running rampant at this point in our world, doing his best to deceive people, and will continue to do so until the end comes at a much greater uh, pace, I believe that he will be bound and that Jesus Christ will return, and when he returns, that he will reign for 1,000 years. So let's read a little further. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. So, now we see kind of a change of pace. The pesky old devil is out of the picture for a while, and now John's attention is drawn to something else that takes place, and that is thrones where people are sitting there and those people are judging. Now the question is, who in the world is sitting on these thrones? There's a lot of questions in Revelation <coughs> chapter 20. The question is, well, who is sitting on these thrones? Well, I think that we have a good idea of who's sitting on these thrones as we look back at the rest of the text. If you look back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you can turn there with me if you would like to. You don't have to. I'm just going to turn and read it real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. This is Paul talking here. Or don't you know that the saints, that is Christians, those who have accepted Jesus, or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Now, in the context of that verse, Paul is talking about things that were going on and people should be able to judge what was going on amongst them at the time. But to make his point in that, Paul says, look, you guys ought to be able to judge amongst yourself and fix your own problems because don't you know that you who are Christians are going to judge the world? So here we have a clear in Scripture that it is going to be those who are in Christ, the saints, who are going to judge. So it's not out of the question to believe in Revelation chapter 20 that those who are seated on thrones and those who are judging are Christians. We see that in Revelation. If you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, you can. If not, just listen carefully. Revelation chapter, chapter 3. We have some other language that is very similar to what we just read. Verse 21. This is Jesus giving a promise to the victor, that is, those who keep their faith and trust in him through the end times. Jesus says, The victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father, on his throne. So here we have this similar language that we have these who are victorious in Jesus Christ who are going to be seated on the throne. And so we have a couple of instances uh, throughout God's Word that talk about those of us who are the saints, those of us who are Christians, will be the ones who judge in the time to come, in the life to come. That we will be the ones who will be seated on the throne with Jesus in the life to come. Let's read a little further in Revelation chapter 20. I also saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for 1,000 years. So here we have 
uh, kind of a distinct separate group. We have one group who is on thrones and who is judging. And then John makes a distinction that he sees those who had been beheaded at this point who had come to life. Now again, the book of Revelation makes us scratch our heads a little bit because how does all these things take place? How come there are some who are Christians who appear to be judging and reigning with Christ and there are some who have accepted Christ and been beheaded and they are just now entering onto the scene? Well, that depends on if you believe or when you believe that the rapture will take place. If the church has already been raptured at this point, at some point in time before this, that is, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ have been taken up into heaven. They have been spared from the wrath of God that we have seen up until this point in the book of Revelation. Uh, those who are in Christ have been raptured up, but there were still uh, some who are living in those times that possibly came to Christ after that. And it is those who were beheaded. We see those beheadings mentioned throughout the book of Revelation. And that's a real life thing that we see happen in our world today among Christians. You know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, if he had said Christians being beheaded, we would have all said, well, that's just kooky talk. That's crazy. That would never happen in our world today. And now it's not that uncommon. You turn on the news and you hear of a Christian being beheaded or you read an article on the Internet. It's pretty common practice, sadly. And so we see these things taking place in our world today. So it is possible and likely, I believe, that these who are beheaded are those who have accepted Christ after the rapture has occurred and they have uh, been behind and their life had been given. And now that Jesus Christ has come back in His second coming, those who had given their life for Him after uh, the first group of Christians were taken up are now coming back to life. They are going to get to share and take part in the blessings along with the other saints. Let's read a little further. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for 1,000 years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will reign with him for 1,000 years. So here we have uh, these who have been beheaded. We have these who are saints that are seated on the throne. And they are all reigning with Christ during this 1,000 year period. It even refers to them as priests. Now again, this is not uncommon language. We see that those who are in Christ are going to be a kingdom of priests. You see that in Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, I believe, is where that's at. And so all these things that we have seen, the Revelation up to this point, as well as the rest of God's Word, they're all kind of falling into place. We're starting to understand the picture a little bit better in a sense, but yet there are still many questions that arise for us. But could you imagine what this world is going to be like when Jesus comes back and he reigns for a thousand years? Can you imagine how wonderful of a place this is going to be? It is going to be a place that is going to be a peaceful place. Here you're going to have Jesus Christ. Here you're going to have those who have accepted Jesus Christ. And I imagine that it is going to be wonderful. Now it's not going to be heaven. But it is going to be a wonderful place because King Jesus is going to be seated on the throne and he is going to be ruling. Now, I think we see several mentions of this millennial reign, this millennial kingdom, this thousand years, 
in the Old Testament. I think we see that on numerous occasions because there are many scriptures that speak of Jesus coming, Jesus reigning, all the enemies being destroyed. And obviously that hasn't happened until this point. And so I believe a lot of these texts that we see in the Old Testament are pointing us toward this very event that we see in the book of Revelation, this very thousand-year period. I want to go over some of those with you today. I'm going to make you work for it. It's okay. Psalm chapter 2. You don't have to flip if you don't want to, but if you want to, you can. Psalm chapter 2. And it's not that these verses in the Old Testament may have not had a specific meaning for that time that God had revealed and put these things on the writer's hearts to write, but with many things in Scripture, they can have two different meanings. Well, one meaning, but two different applications, I should say, would be a better way to say that. And so it's not that these verses we're going to look at didn't have an application back in the time that they were written, but I also think that they were pointing us forward to this time in the book of Revelation. Psalm chapter 2, I'm going to read the whole thing. Why do the nations rebel and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. That sounds pretty familiar, right? That sounds a lot like what we've seen taking place in the previous chapters in the book of Revelation. The kings of the earth getting ready to take a stand against the Lord. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. We've already seen that take place. We've seen God's wrath poured out upon those who tried to come upon him in the book of Revelations. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possessions. So here's exactly what we're seeing take place in Revelation chapter 20. That Jesus is ruling over everything, over all of the earth. All of the enemies have been defeated. They could not stand. And Jesus is ruling as king over everything that's left for this thousand years. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice in trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. So here we have some strong language about what is going to take place in the end times. But we have a warning here saying, look, if you're, if you're hearing these words, then take note and don't think that you're wise on your own. Don't be foolish, but seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near and seek refuge in Jesus Christ, the Son who is coming. I think Psalm 2 is a good verse that points us toward the millennium and what's going to take place. There are many other instances. Isaiah chapter 6. Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. If you want to flip there, you can. If not, just listen closely. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. 
For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. This is a, a verse that maybe you've heard at Christmas at some point in time. This is clearly a verse that is prophesying about Jesus Christ who is going to come. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Again, we see mention of Jesus coming onto, us, onto the scene, but these uh, passages that we look at here also point us further into the picture that Jesus is going to rule and he is going to reign on his, over his people and it's going to be a kingdom that will last forever. He will sit on the throne forever. So it's pointing to events which have already taken place, that is the birth of Jesus, but it is pointing us to events that are going to take place ultimately when Jesus returns. And I believe that those events begin with the millennial kingdom, with this thousand years that we see in the book of Revelation. If you want to flip a couple of pages over to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. We again see some language that is very similar to what we have seen up to this point in the book of Revelation. I'll read the first nine verses. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with discipline from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Very similar to the language we saw last week when Jesus came. When Jesus came, it said that there was a sword coming from his mouth. And we talked about that that's not a literal sword that's going to be coming from Jesus' mouth, more than likely. It is representative that he is going to speak judgment, and that is going to be the destruction of those who oppose him. Here in Isaiah chapter 11, we see similar language. We see from his mouth that he brings destruction to those to kill the wicked. Verse 5, righteousness will be a belt around his loins. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf with the young lion and the fatling will be together. And a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. None will harm or destroy another on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full as of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Now again, we have, uh, we have verses that are pointing to a time that is going to come, a time that we can't even begin to fathom. Can you think of all the wild animals laying down together and none of them eating each other? 
I mean, you put all these animals together, you'd have the lions eating everything else and all these things going on. Talking about a toddler with a, by a cobra's pit? I mean, come on. Who's going to do that? Who's going to put their toddler beside a, a poisonous or, or deadly snake? Nobody. Because that would be foolish. Because we live in a time now where everything is kind of chaos. But these verses are pointing to a time when everything is going to be in peace. When all the animals will be in peace with one another. When there will be nothing to worry about where everything will be good. Now we clearly haven't gotten to that time yet. But the language here leads us to believe that there will be a physical time where these things will take place. And again, I believe that these verses could be pointing us to the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign when Jesus will bring peace. Because all we have seen up until this point in this world, because of our sinfulness, because of the devil, and because of his deception, is that there has not been peace, but there has been mass chaos. But here we have the hope pointing us to a time when Jesus is going to come and he's going to make all things right. Isaiah chapter 2. If you want to flip there, you can. You don't have to. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem... In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established. At the top of the mountains, we will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will turn their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations, and they will never again train for war. Now, we definitely hadn't gotten to that point where a nation doesn't want to rise against other nations. Peace is something that people in this world long for. We hear that word said all the time. And we have all these political groups that say, if we do things this way, it's going to bring peace. There is this desire for all nations to be together and to be at peace and there to be no trouble. We see that at the United Nations. You've heard of the United Nations before, I'm sure. If you go to the headquarters in New York City, there is a giant statue with a man with a hammer beating a sword with this very verse on it. The United Nations was created because people were desiring to have peace among the nations. There is coming a time where the Antichrist is going to come and he is going to promise peace among the nations. Follow me, everything's going to be good. But what we see in the text time and time again is that it is only Jesus Christ who is going to bring that peace. And that is what we see take place, I believe, in this thousand-year reign. When Jesus comes back, I believe that all of these things that we have seen in the Old Testament, not just the ones we looked at today, this is just a few. I know it's a lot that we read today, but it's just a few in the grand, uh, vast majority of the Old Testament text. There are many things that would point us to this day that Jesus Christ is coming and He is going to reign and it is going to be a time of peace. And that is going to be a wonderful day. And that's what we see taking place in Revelation chapter 20 during this millennial reign. All right, back to Revelation. I'm not going to make you guys flip too much more. Back to Revelation chapter 20. 
I know it's a lot of reading, but just bear with me because I think it's important that we get the whole of God's Word to understand, especially when we look at difficult verses. Because we don't only look at the text, we look at the context and we look at the whole text. And by doing so, it helps us to get a better understanding of what we're trying to figure out today. All right, verse 7, Revelation chapter 20. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Now, this four corners of the earth, it doesn't mean that the earth is square, but that's a term that's symbolic of the whole earth. Gog and Magog is a reference back to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. We won't go into that detail today, but you can go back and check that out if you, if you care to sometime this week. So, uh, the devil's going to be released for a thousand years, and he's going to go out, and he's going to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Uh, a little further down. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, this is, a, this is a tough part here. This is a tough question. If everyone has been killed up until this point who was with Satan, and everyone who has put their trust in the Lord has been raptured up, and everyone who has been killed during uh, the rest of the time, and now that Jesus has come back, they are now reigning with Jesus. Satan's been uh, uh, bound up for a thousand years. Who in the world is Satan going to deceive when he gets out of the abyss? That's a good question. And I wish I could tell you that I 100% knew what the answer to that question was. And you Google that question, you'll find a thousand different views as to why that is and who these are that Satan is going to deceive. I don't know who that group is going to be. I have a theory. I will share with you this theory. It does not say this in the text, but in studying the text and reading through the text, I have a theory as to what will be the, 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 the point of this and why Satan is bound for a thousand years and why the Lord is going to allow him to come back and what, what, what the purpose is. Now again, this is, just, this is, this is Shan preaching here. This is, not, this is not the Word of God because the Word of God doesn't tell us. But what I think could be the case in these verses is that there will likely be some who, after there is a rapture for those who are in Christ, there will be some who will give their life to the Lord. There will be some who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There will be some of those who will be killed, but there will be some of those who will be alive. And when Jesus Christ returns for his millennial reign, you are going to have all those who have already put their faith and trust in Christ who have already gone to be with him or who have lost their life, and they will come back to life. But you are going to have some who are going to be alive. And so during this thousand-year reign of the Lord, you are going to have those who enter into it into their mortal bodies. And so it would seem logical that during this time that those that group would be able to reproduce. And if there is 1,000 years of reproduction, there are some verses in the Old Testament which would lead us to believe that during this time of the millennium that people will live longer. And during this 1,000 years, if there are some in mortal bodies who have accepted Jesus Christ and they are there under the reign of King Jesus that they will continue to populate the earth. And there could be countless of millions, billions at the end of this thousand years. Because you have to keep in mind that the devil's no longer in the picture. He can no longer deceive people. Now these people will still be mortal. They will still have a, a sinful side to them. But with Jesus ruling over and there no deception 
You can imagine that that's going to be a wonderful place, a place of peace. I would guess, again, my opinion, that Jesus would probably do much healing. There's probably not going to be much sickness during that time. And if this is true, then what you're going to have is possibly millions or billions of people who have been born under the reign of King Jesus. And then you are going to have the devil who is going to be released. And I know what you're saying. If people have served Jesus for a thousand years and they have seen King Jesus, how in the world could they deny that, they're, uh, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords? How in the world could they deny that? How would they be deceived? The devil is good. So what I believe is going to happen, you're going to see these millions who were born during the tribulation, who have served under Jesus, and possibly have begun to have some doubts of their own, and now Satan is going to be loosed after a thousand years. And here's probably what he's going to tell them. This King Jesus doesn't have your best interest in mind. Did you choose to serve him? No, you didn't. You were born into this. You don't have to serve him. You can do what you want to. You can make your own choice. And it says that the devil is able to gather up many as numerous of the sands of the sea. A lot of people that he's going to be able to deceive. And I think he is going to deceive them with that lie saying, you don't have to serve him. You can make the choice because that is the very sin that Satan committed. It was his own pride that he desired to be in the place of God. He was a created being who desired to be God. And the text said that he decided he wanted to be better than God. And God said, you don't want to serve me. I'm not going to force you to serve serving. And God doesn't force any of us to serve. And you're going to have those who are going to choose Jesus and you're going to have those who are going to be opposed. And when that time comes, we're going to see Satan's destruction. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampments of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So there's not much of a battle. These as numerous of the sands of the seashore that come uh, at the kingdom, at this beloved city, wherever it may be, possibly Jerusalem, and against Jesus Christ and against the saints. There aren't even, isn't even a battle. Uh, the fire comes down and consumes this group, and they are done. Let's read a little further. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with their beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I think that the reason that it could play out this way is that what we're going to end up with after this takes place, after those who have been deceived by the devil, after he is loosened, is what you're going to be left with is a group of people who every one of them has freely and deliberately chosen Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are none who were born into it. There were none who were forced to make this decision. But everyone has made their decision. And what you have left are those saints who have already chosen Jesus, who had given their life before and been raptured up and been resurrected. And you also have those who had been living during this time who had given their life for Jesus and had freely chosen Him. And so what you are going to have when everybody goes to heaven is you are going to have faithful servants who have all trusted Jesus Christ. Now that's just one view. The text does not tell us. There are some things in the text that are just a mystery. I shared that view with you because maybe it will be helpful for you. But God doesn't tell us exactly what's going to happen. He doesn't tell us who those are who are going to be deceived in this time. But there is one thing that we can get from all of this text today. 
And that is when all is said and done, all of the tactics, all of the tries of the devil, everything that he has done and tried to thwart the plan of God, to destroy Jesus Christ, and those who have put their faith and trust in him, they have come up as no good. His best efforts cannot stop God's plan. His best efforts cannot stop Jesus Christ. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur forever and ever. Say hallelujah. I don't sound very excited. The one who has caused you all the grief, all the stress, all the heartache, all the temptation, everything that you have ever faced in your life, all the loss, everything that you struggle with, all your sinfulness, He is being destroyed forever and He's never going to bother you again if you placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We have reason to be excited. We don't need to sit here, hallelujah. No, this is going to be a magnificent and a wonderful moment because up until this point, the devil has been allowed. But after this point, the devil will never be allowed to touch you or torment you again for as long as eternity lasts. That's a good day. That is a good time. King Jesus has won. And King Jesus has brought you along His side if you have put your trust in Him. You will be judges of the world. You will share His throne with Him. You will be a kingdom of priests. And you will be with Him for all of eternity in heaven. That is a good day. Boy, that's some good news. Because we've looked at bad news and hard stuff all throughout this text of Revelation. And finally, the one who has caused us such pain is done for for all of eternity. But have you put your faith and trust in Him? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because we see clearly here in the text who the victor is going to be. Maybe some of you have been reading along and following along and thinking, that devil, he may have a chance. He's still at it. Well, I just squashed that for you today. The Bible clearly says that his chances will be done. And that Jesus will reign. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? If you haven't done that, you have to make that decision. To accept Him as your Lord and Savior. To ask Him to be your Savior. To be your King of kings and Lord of lords. And to cover you with His blood. Blood. And give you that victory that we see here in the text. Let's pray. God, I come to you today and I thank you for your good word. And God, it was confusing and, and there are a lot of opinions and ideas, dear Lord. And we may not have the for sure answer as we study your word here on this earth. But God, we know the point of this text and that's that Jesus wins. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he won when he went to the cross, dear Lord. God, and we thank you that because of that we can win if we accept Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that we look forward to a day and we have the hope when our enemy is gone, when he is done, dear Lord. But God, we're not at that day yet. God, we're still struggling. God, we're still sinners. We still give in. We're still tormented by our temptations, by these things that we don't want to do, dear Lord. But God, we are desperately wicked in this day and age. But God, we thank you for sending us a Savior who was good, who was humble, and who was gracious. So God, I pray that if there is one in this room that has not accepted Jesus Christ today, that maybe they got it. 
God, maybe they saw the big picture. Maybe they see what's coming and they've heard of your wrath and your torment and they've heard of your judgment. But God, that they know that your grace is greater than your judgment. I pray that if there's one that hadn't accepted Jesus, that they would do so today, God. That they would come down during this time of invitation to make Jesus their own. And God, for those of us in this room who have accepted that grace, we thank you. And God, I pray that you continue to be with us because God, we're still struggling. We're still on this journey. We're still going through hard times. Give us the strength to fight the enemy, to fight the devil, dear Lord, with your words. To call on the name of Jesus in our times of worry, in our time of stress, in our time of, uh, uh, of temptation, God. To know that you will get us through that. And help us to long and look forward to the day and hope for the day when the devil will be done far forever and ever. And we can be alongside you, Lord Jesus. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.